Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. Hey, let's go out to eat. Okay, so where do you want to go? And what do you want to eat? I once heard someone say that when talking about food, poor people ask, how much did you get? And middle-class people ask, how did it taste? And rich people inquire, how was the presentation? Well, you can certainly put me in the middle group. I really like to know how food tastes. But having eaten in restaurants for scores of years, hey, I'm an old man, what I really remember is where I ate and who I was with more than what the food tasted like. In today's podcast, I want to look back at where I ate over the years with some reference to whom I was with at the time for good measure. From the routine of cooking, even though cooking is very popular right now, it's also a break from the routine of eating with the same people as in your family and a break from eating in the same place, your kitchen or dining room. This journey goes from east to west across the U.S., but towards the end, I'll talk briefly about some memorable meals in foreign countries as well. Let's start out in the East. In my collection of old photos, there's one of a quaint little place in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where my bride and I stopped for a romantic honeymoon dinner on a rainy September evening in 1965. The most memorable part of that lobster feast was me getting a really bad stomach ache from the rich New England food and barfing my way back to the hotel. Not an auspicious start as a gourmand or husband for that matter. A family vacation to Quebec City back in the early 80s brought us to a recommended small restaurant, a French restaurant up in the foothills. A cordial middle-aged woman welcomed us to the place. It had just a few tables. Not long after we were seated, she came by and passed out menus. After placing our orders, we noticed her in the kitchen cooking and then later tallying bills at the front desk as diners left. We finally surmised that this woman was the only person working there. And of course, the food was pretty okay, French after all. Over succeeding trips out east in the following years, I learned to better handle seafood Friends in Boston introduced me to great eating spots like Legal Seafoods, a standard for quality seafood for decades. Two other memorable restaurants included the venerable Union Oyster House. I mostly remember eating the chowder at the bar in between beers there with locals who worked for the same organization as me. My favorite spot in Boston, however, was the Parker House where you could enjoy not just their famous dinner rolls, but dance to a real band and munch on free hors d'oeuvres during the happy hour. In a post-2022 COVID world, I can't even wrap my head around the idea of going out with colleagues for drinks, let alone drinks and dancing. Please tell me that there are still places in the old Parker, like the old Parker House somewhere in the world. Going into Philly was another pleasurable experience back in the 80s and 90s. Of course, Bookbinders was the must-go-to restaurant then, 
But I remember one special night when maybe a dozen of us from various parts of the country went out to eat downtown. The dinner, I think it was Italian, but somehow with the help of the locals, we started singing old hits from the town's most famous legacy after the Liberty Bell, American Bandstand, and we just couldn't stop. Another Pennsylvania landmark I visited was the Hotel Hershey in the famous Chocolate City near Harrisburg. It was a large and old-fashioned place, and our group, including a, a young adventurous lady, smoked cigars and danced through the corridors. A magical night. The food, I don't remember. The night, I'll never forget. For a time in the late 60s, when I was stateside with the Army, I was assigned to Baltimore. I guess we could call the food there during my two stints working-class gourmet, that did not include Hausner's, the restaurant with a phone book-sized menu with lots of German fare. Also, there was a neighborhood joint near Dundalk, where we lived, where they would dump a half bushel of blue crabs on your table, and you'd go at it with a pitcher of beer. Wish to heck I could remember the name of that place. I do remember a kind of sad story there about a secretary from one of the local banks who would dress up in her finest, then treat herself every Saturday night to a candlelit dinner at the Lord Baltimore Hotel. The meal consisted of a hamburger. That image of lonely dining has never left my mind. New York, of course, is a food town for sure. The only fancy place we ever ate at was the Rainbow Room one time, and unfortunately I can't recall anything but the amazing size and beauty of that place. It dominates my memories of the Big Apple. On other trips over the years, my old newspaper reporter buddy Rick took me to a couple of interesting local joints. One was called Tuva Bien, French for uh, All Goes Well. It was a bistro owned by a famous, at least to some people, French race car driver who modestly had papered the walls of the place with photos of his racing exploits. The second place in New York, I think, was called Cafe Bocce, aptly named because it had a bocce ball court right in the middle of the place. All I remember about the food was that it was obviously Italian. Safe bet, huh? In the early 2000s, before 9-11, we joined some friends on a trip to the Apple. The big food disappointment was a dinner of bone marrow. Did I get that right? At Michael Jordan's restaurant. Oh, well. When you head south, you really do start remembering the food. My first sortie south for food was, of course, New Orleans. I didn't comprehend the significance of it right away, but my old friend from grad school, Newt Hamlin, and his wife squared us around over a long weekend to some of the Big Easy's most famous dining spots. Brennan's for breakfast, Antoine's for dinner. What a dinner. Pompano a papillette. Pompano cooked in a paper bag. Unforgettable. We also had drinks at Preservation Hall and listened to the jazz there before it got famous. There were other trips and other great restaurants, but the first ones are the ones you remember best. And you always remember the bitter coffee mellowed with milk and accompanied by those light powdery biscuits called beignets served in the park across from the St. Louis Cathedral. Of course, we're talking about Café du Monde.
The South is also known for wonderful poor people food, such as used to be served at Shoals Cafeteria in Washington, D.C. On my first trip there in the late 60s, I marveled at the vegetables, ratatouille, okra, greens, and the like. And of course, on a Sunday drive, you couldn't help but pass a pop-up on the road where locals offered Maryland fried chicken, a southern staple. The most bizarre dining experience I had in Washington was in the late 70s when I noticed a sign hanging above a restaurant that featured an old sailing ship, a frigate. As a matter of fact, it caught my attention because it was the name of a restaurant I had visited a number of times when I was stationed in Vietnam. I had to go in. The maitre d' spoke in French, accented English, and the owner was the wife of a Vietnamese general who was still serving time under the communists. As I chatted with the maitre d', I realized his name sounded familiar. Would you believe he was the former prime minister? Wow, what a story. When we escape Chicago each winter and go to Florida's Gulf Coast, we honor a pack some years back to eat only seafood. It's an easy vow to keep, especially when you think of those delicious grouper sandwiches, which abound, the delicate and also delicious mahi-mahi, and so on. We stay at a little island north of Sarasota called Longboat Key, which is adjacent to Cortez, an old fishing village which still provides delicacies like mackerel and oysters and shrimp and amberjack and redfish and so on. In that aquatic paradise, there's thankfully not much room for cheeseburgers in paradise. Each year on the drive to Florida, we make one exception. We stop at a little North Florida town called Fanning Springs at an unremarkably looking place called the Barbecue Shack. There we gorge on pulled pork, beans, and homemade coleslaw before the seafood fest begins. Barbecue, of course, is what the Mid-South is famous for, and you can do no better than placing an order almost anywhere in Memphis, a town known for parading ducks who inhabit the lobby of its Peabody Hotel, where a store exists also where Elvis acquired much of his legendary couture. Returning to our Midwestern home base, it should be noted that Chicago traveled a long, strenuous path to become an important food city, much as it did becoming only second to New York as a theater town. I can remember a few decades back when Chicago had maybe one super popular restaurant. It was called The Bakery. It was run by a bigger-than-life Hungarian named Louis Zathmari, and it took forever to get a reservation. Louis's most famous dish was Beef Wellington, and when we finally got a chance to go there in the 70s, it was well worth it. Others might argue with conviction that there were other famous spots to eat as well. For example, there was the Berghof, which until the 90s was a first-rate German restaurant in downtown Chicago with a line always out the door. Reasonably priced with an all-male European waitstaff and good traditional German fare, it was on everybody's list. I'm sure there is a whole podcast I could do just on Chicago food, like the obvious topics, pizza, beef, and hot dogs. But for many of us, the truly memorable night out was an anniversary or birthday celebration at the Cape Cod Room 
of the Drake Hotel. Great seafood, awesome service, and finally, alas, a new owner who closed it down. Talk about tasteless. We Chicagoans still miss it. As a kid, my first clue that there were such things as fancy restaurants came from the fact that our next door neighbor was a chef at a downtown eatery called Fritzel's, where Old Mayor Daly frequently dined. Unfortunately, it closed before I had enough money or interest to try it out. Getting interested in food and cooking came to me by necessity. My mother was not a great cook. The standing joke at our dinner table was when my father would look at her, maybe while we were eating a can of Dinty Moore beef stew for supper, and I remember him telling her, quote, Annie, you get so close to your cooking diploma and then you muff it. In my own home, I let, left the spouse do the cooking for many decades, but as I grow older, it just happened that I started taking a more active role. Anyway, to continue with this food travel log, I anticipate that most people would say that the best food west of Chicago is the Southwest Mexican cuisine, and I won't argue with that. But I have found some of my best eating experiences were actually in Denver. In the late 90s, I headed out west with my son, Mike, to look at possible colleges. As an adjunct to this journey of inquiry, I decided to take him to three of the best restaurants in the state. Now, I had been going to Denver on business since the 70s and kind of knew my way around. Thanks to a wonderful Denver-based work buddy named Carol George, who knew her way around. First stop was the legendary, and I apply this word to all three of these restaurants we visited. The first stop was at an adobe set of buildings in the foothills outside of Denver in a town called Morrison. The fort, as it was called, was in the 70s, the 90s, and even today, to me, the epitome of Western dining experience. You enter through an enclosed courtyard with a wood fire crackling before you, you sit down and you wait to be called, and a log to sit on and stare. It's an anteroom to the main dining area and also to some private rooms as well. Back in the 70s, there was even a black bear kept in a cage just outside the building. I know, it's a no-no now. The main dining room is a series of tiered levels looking out through an expansive set of windows on twinkling lights of the mile-high city below. The menu is typically Western, including lots of buffalo specialties like Rocky Mountain oysters. If you don't know what they are, I'm not going to tell you. I just want to simply say that when I'm in the fort, I feel like I am really in the West. By the way, the fort is named after Bent's Fort, an early trading post. The second great uh, restaurant Mike and I visited was the Buckhorn Exchange, a venerable steakhouse when I first visited it in the 70s. Like the Ford, it's still in business. But the most special time was that first visit in the early 70s when the owner was still alive and I got a chance to talk with this nonagenarian. I was amazed to learn that he had hunted in his younger years often with Buffalo Bill. Wow, what an amazing experience to talk with this man and hear his stories. The third spot Mark and I visited on this 90s trip was a lunch at one of America's great hotels, the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. 
All I can remember is the amazing views and the old American charm. Trips to San Francisco before the tech invasion were always a treat. Nothing in the world could beat happy hour at the St. Francis Hotel with its elegant lobby bar and afternoon tea music. It's the one place that I ever visited where I drank champagne and ate caviar. The only place that I could outdo the St. Francis would be an evening at the Fairmont in San Francisco. There was the Venetian room with the best and top entertainers. Never went to it. Then there was Turk Murphy's Jazz Bar in the main lobby. Never had so much fun dancing. But the best of the best was the Tonga room in the hotel's basement, where an old swimming pool was converted to a, an aquatic stage and a band would come out on a little barge to entertain diners who ate inside an old sailing bark on the shore. The best tiki experience of all time. I could go on about San Francisco like afternoon drinks and Sausalito at the Trident, a favorite location, but the memories are sad and gone. Okay, before wrapping up, I'd like to talk briefly about a few places I've eaten at overseas. On our first trip to Europe, we took Icelandic Airlines. The year was 1968. It was a four-engine prop, but the smoothest and cheapest flight to Europe. The plane landed in Luxembourg City, and our first meal was at a restaurant in the train station that served simple fare with the most silver I had ever seen before or since. A second memorable meal, eating on a floating restaurant in Hong Kong Bay after drinks at the British Officers Club, that was a great memory. Third memory, being feted in the city of Nha Trang, Vietnam by some locals because I was doing outreach for the 101st Airborne Division, which I was part of then. The memorable part was how I entertained the locals with my absolute incompetence handling chopsticks. I'm glad they enjoyed it. It's so convenient these days to eat bad food at unmemorable places. When you can, take time to seek out interesting places to eat on your travels. The food might not be memorable, but the experience may very well be. That's it for now. Bon appétit. You've been listening to Here Comes Yesterday a podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead. Your ideas and reactions can also be very useful. Contact Frank Corrado via email at corrado at c4m.com. That's C-O-R-R-A-D-O at the letter C, the number 4, the letter M, dot com. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening, and catch us next time.